The Start On Demand. On demand. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers went into Ontario last week 5-0 and and leave 5-2 and after losing first to Hamilton and now to the hapless Toronto Argonauts. Meanwhile, it looked like it was all systems go for the Portage Place sale, but the federal government has gotten in the way. If you could create an all-Manitoba NHL team, current players only, who would be on it? And we've got all sorts of exciting events to tell you about. Gimli Icelandic Festival or Eastland Dingadagarin, the Manitoba Derby at Assiniboia Downs, and the Winnipeg Beer Festival. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and a vacationing Loren McNabb, who is back next week. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and this is the Friday, August 2nd podcast for The Start. Greg, um, you know we we like to have we like to have fun every day, but Fridays mm-hmm. in particular we look forward to because we like to try to goof off just a little bit more. But but are you in the mood to goof off at all today? I'm guessing you're a little crusty. Well, I stayed up later than I like to mm-hmm. to watch the Bombers cough up a twenty nothing lead, as Tristan just told us in news. Yeah, yeah, I'm not in a good mood. And I don't think a lot of Blue Bombers fans are in a good mood this morning. 5-0 and oh, turned to 5-2 and two in uh, six days in Ontario. Yeah. And a team and a season that was uh, looking to have such promise has some serious question marks surrounding it this morning. I think we should discuss the game as little as possible this morning. As little as possible? I think so. Really? Yeah. I woke up this morning. It was sort of like... Um, how do I put this? Uh, it was like my younger years when I was a little bit more indulgent, mm-hmm. shall we say. I think I've confessed to you the waking up in a panic and you go for the pants and you open a wallet. Yes. I did spend every dollar last night. Yeah. 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 I woke up and instantly had that that pit in my stomach that something wasn't quite wrong or quite right, that something was wrong, like what the hell happened last night. And instead of having to piece it together in a fog, I knew exactly what had happened. The realization was instantaneous. Bombers lose to the Argos. What a horrible way to start the long weekend. Listeners are going to be in a less than delightful mood. Yeah, yeah. Bombers were up 20 nothing at one point, and I've got to play this clip. Andrew Harris was on an absolute mission last night, and then something changed. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to. You, you guys seem to go away from the run, which was working so well. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you averaged 10 yards a carry, I think, and, uh, and yet the... For periods, it seemed like they went away from you, and sometimes we, we find that a little bit difficult to understand. And it, if you guys make a first down there after the fumble recovery, probably the game's over, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't say uh, I, I, I agree with you. That's a difficult conversation to have with thousands of people listening. Mm-hmm. You know your boss might be listening, and if he's not listening at the moment, 
going to be listening, mm-hmm. going to hear about what you have to say. Yep. Andrew Harris uh, trying to be polite, trying to follow his mother's advice, I think. Mm-hmm. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But I think that clip says a lot. Lots of finger pointing today. Brett McGarry, Matt Nichols, his performance under the microscope just two weeks after, I think it was 19 completions in a row against Ottawa. Paul Lapolis, the offensive coordinator of the Blue Bombers, people asking, why in the hell did you go away from Harris in the second half? Sorry if I've used hell three times now in the first seven minutes of the show. Mike O'Shea for maybe a seeming lack of overall killer instinct and last night's suspect special team play uh, really, really hurt the Bombers last night. And Richie Hall again. So on the radar of Bomber fans and defensive coordinator people asking, like, what's going on there? Uh, that's probably, of all the groups, if you go offense, defense, special teams, coaches, the defense is probably the area that I had least concerns about. McLeod Bethel-Thompson, who's not an elite quarterback, did throw for over 340 yards and three touchdowns last night. But when it was on the line and they were driving with a couple of minutes left, Toronto, for uh, what would have been the go-ahead touchdown. Willie Jefferson came up with a huge play, stripped the ball from Bethel Thompson. Bombers recover the fumble, and the Blue Bomber offense couldn't get really all they needed was one first down, and the game would have been salted away. So uh, you can say what you want about the defense. They came up with a huge play down the stretch, and uh, the Blue Bomber offense uh, just simply couldn't match what the Toronto offense was doing. So is this the point then where Bomber fans will maybe start to say, here we go again? They're already saying it. They're already saying it. They were saying it after the Hamilton game last week. You can rest assured they're saying it again today. And then as you look ahead, Thursday, August 8th, they play Calgary. Calgary comes to town. Bo Levi Mitchell, the star quarterback of the Stampeders, not expected to be in the lineup, but uh, that doesn't seem to matter. (laughs) Dane Evans was in for Jeremiah Mazzoli last week against Hamilton on Friday. Bombers couldn't take advantage. McLeod Bethel Thompson, like I said, uh, at the top of nobody's must-have list. If you could uh, take any quarterback you wanted off of any roster, McLeod Bethel Thompson might be uh, one of the last guy's picks. So uh, anyway, it's uh, uh, tough to digest this morning. Coming up after Global News at 7 o'clock, Greg put together painstakingly, and I emphasize the word pain, mm-hmm. put together a montage of the sounds of the game last night. It's even out of order. It's not even chronological. It's just the main themes and in the order that they should be digested, I think. Okay. Greg's not happy this morning because <laughs> the bombers blew it. So, And consequently, can I just yeah, I publicly... I be used to this, you know? I know. But can I just publicly acknowledge, I love the Winnipeg Sun and their headlines. Oh, yeah? What front, did they say today? Front page, it says, blew it. But with the word blue is in blue bombers. Blew it. So I love their headlines. I remember years back, I don't know how many years back, they, uh, they was a, it was about the gas prices, and the, the headline was, pumping ain't easy. <laughs> 
And uh, that I think this may have been still when The Godfather was one of the, the characters in the WWE, and his tagline was, Pimpin' ain't easy. So that made me chuckle. So, hey, Winnipeg Sun, kudos to you. So that's coming up at 7.07, and then at 7.15, more on what's going on with the feds and Portage Place. They've asked for a delay in this sale. You know, that, that, that mall bit was for sale for like a couple of years, you know? Yeah. If you had concerns about what was going to happen with it, Speak up then. Yeah. I have a feeling I'm going to be a little bit boisterous today. And, Good. And maybe cantankerous. I like Surly in my, in my opinions today. <laughs> Come on. So we'll get into that. Yeah, I was watching Brittany Greenslade's story on Global, and I thought, what? What? The last couple of weeks, we have been sharing memories, reminiscing, revisiting the 1999 Pan Am Games here in Winnipeg. And it's been a huge pleasure for me, because it was a real eye-opening experience, because as I mentioned a couple of days ago when we spoke with retired homicide investigator James Jewell, who was a member of the SWAT team that was kind of in, they were, they did security for the games and they went venue to venue. I told him like, look, man, I was like 20, I was in my early 20s. All I cared about was just going out and goofing off with my buddies. I, I, I was cool that the games were here, but I wasn't really paying all that much attention. So to come back now... As a more mature adult, uh, that's in air quotes, uh, <laughs> and see just how important these games were to people and how special it was uh, has been a great experience just for me to learn about this stuff. And it was a special time for me uh, being the age I was. My dad always spoke so glowingly of his experience. He did ushering at the 1967 Pan Am Games at the baseball venue. And my dad always raved about what Winnipeg did and could do under certain circumstances. And I think we've established quite emphatically, without a doubt, that the 99 Pan Am Games was Winnipeg at its best. And for CJOB, it was a big deal because it might have been CJOB at its best. And before you press play on this montage, shout out to Hal Anderson, but a huge word of thank you to Kelly Moore for driving this uh, for the last month, really, and preparing for this. And uh, I just want to thank Kelly so much for everything that he does here, but in particular, uh, driving these features for the last two week, uh, weeks. Uh, the guests have been fantastic. The memories have been more than incredible. And uh, Hal Anderson put together this uh, audio uh, vault of uh, the last two weeks. As we wrap up our on-air celebration of the 20th anniversary of Winnipeg's 1999 Pan Am Games, we thought we'd share with you some of the highlights from the many conversations we've had here on CJOB over the past couple of weeks. We'll start with then-premier Gary Philman on how we almost didn't get the games. And it came down to a very, very close vote, as you know. In the end, the first off the ballot uh, were, uh, were um, Sherbrooke, then Edmonton, and in the final it was Toronto versus Winnipeg. And we didn't have reason to believe that... Uh, um, that Sherbrooke might support us, but we thought at least Toronto, or that Edmonton would support us. In the end, Edmonton actually supported Toronto, and Sherbrooke did support us, and, and we won by, I think it was only one vote. Oh. So it was a great, uh, great excitement for us. Don McKenzie, the president and CEO of Winnipeg's Pan Am Games in 99. It's the people. I mean, we have wonderful people here, and uh, we had 2,000 volunteers, and they did a wonderful job. 
my uh, the staff person came to me and said, because we only wanted 1,800. She came to me one day and she says, Don, we got 2,000. What do I do? I said, you don't do anything. I said, you're not refusing anybody. And they made the games. The sports community did. We let the sports look after sports, and the volunteers helped them, and that's why it was successful. $150 million, we had an $8 million surplus. You know, unlike some other games I don't want to talk about. A couple of local athletes now who took part in the games. We'll start with cyclist Tanya Dubnikov. Everything felt so right. You know, it almost seemed like it was effortless. And so I think that's what I remember the most is that that everything went so well. The training went so well, the, you know, the teammates and the coaching and, you know, the equipment, everything just worked so well. And even though I did, you know, have to produce a lot of power and a lot of energy to, to do well, but it was just something about everything coming together and it just felt like it was effortless. So it was sort of in that flow state. And I was able to enjoy it as well. And basketballer Todd McCullough. It was uh, fantastic. Um, of course, uh, you guys know what a great city it is and how great the people are. And so to just the, the amount of volunteers that wanted to be a, a, a part of it and just the whole spirit of it, it was just an, an amazing energy. And, uh, you know, since high school, I really hadn't had a chance to play in front of a uh, family and friends and all the all the supporters that I've had throughout my career so it was really really special and Winnipeg just did an amazing job hosting and really representing uh, so well and uh, I was happy that we uh, that we played well and that we were able to um, to you know show the show the rest of the uh, country how we'd been working as a as a national team and the Pan Am games were very uh, that, that was an amazing experience I can't believe it's been 20 years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then of course CJOB had its very own Pan Am team covering the games including Larry Updike Brian Barkley and Bob Irving and I walked around that that uh, you know the site the core site I walked all around there and I would just grab people and talk to them or I'd talk to the vendors what's the experience like tell me your story and then I remember after doing that the first day, I'm coming back to the radio station. I have no, I, know, I got no approval for this whatsoever. So I'm thinking, well, I'm really in it now. <laughs> <laughs> the original Guess Who were on the closing ceremonies and they played a four or five set, four or five song set. And to me, it was like, wow, this is this is what Winnipeg is all about. This is one of the best things we ever did. And here they are back together again. I think the premier had asked them to get together because they had come apart for all kinds of different reasons. But for the Pan Am Games, they came together and they wowed the crowd. They sounded great. And I was one of those guys that I, I had even seen that band uh, early in their status. They came to our high school in Portage La Prairie. So they had played back then. And now seeing them at the Pan Am Games all together again, it was a huge musical moment, but it was just indicative of what the Pan Am Games did. They brought out the best of Winnipeg in so many ways. And I still, to this day, remember how proud I was of the job that CJOB did. Uh, What a wonderful uh, response we got from our listeners and the public. Because when the game started, we all wondered, geez, I wonder how interested people are going to be. And I wonder what the crowds are going to be like. And of course, it turned out to be a phenomenal success. And uh, we were right in the middle of it. So it was one of these, when I look back on the 40-some years I've been at CJOB, I think about those 99 Pan Am games and of course everybody wondered would we be able to duplicate the success they had in the 67 Pan Am games in Winnipeg and when I say we I mean the city of Winnipeg and it came off famously and we were a big part of it and it's something I think for our radio station back then and even now to celebrate. There were so many more special guests who joined us we just couldn't fit them all in. 
but we certainly hope you enjoyed all of those wonderful memories. From your radio voice of the 1999 Pan American Games, 680 CJOB. Thank you very much, Kelly Moore, and thank you, Hal Anderson, for putting that montage together. Shall we call that the 34th greatest montage of all time? At least. At least number 34. And the, the guess who you might remember ended up going on a huge tour after that. They called it Running Back Through Canada. Yep. Culminated in that incredible concert at Shaw Park, outdoors, filmed. You can, you can still get the DVD out there somewhere. I think it's on YouTube, too. Mackling and McGarry McNabb back next week. Tristan Field-Jones is here. Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Fortier is here. And we're going to play this clip from Robin Williams that Tristan found to set up our segment. This is why I had to give up alcohol, because you have to pay the next day. Pay, dear Lord, please don't hurt me now. <laughs> there you are lying in bed, and you feel like the scene from the movie The Fly going, Help me! Help me! The entire room is spinning like a roulette wheel. Place your bets. Place your bets. <laughs> And there's the old toilet in the corner going, talk to me. <laughs> You've got an alcoholic problem. You do. And the worst part is there are times when you drink so much, you don't remember what you've done the night before. And you get those little phone calls where people let you know. <laughs> what? Yeah? Really? I took a dump on your tuba. <laughs> Now, the reason why we're talking about this is I've been kind of sitting on this for a couple of weeks. I won't say where, but I, I just went to a course to play golf, and there had been a tournament there the day before. And it was a Saturday morning tournament, and they, I asked them in the clubhouse, hey, I heard you had a tournament yesterday. How did it go? And they said it, it was kind of a gong show. Some of the guys in this tournament drove their golf carts onto... I think two of the greens, and we're doing donuts. Thankfully, they didn't destroy the green. For those who don't know, if you drive a golf cart on a course, you're not supposed to drive it onto the green. That's the putting surface. It's supposed to be kept in good shape. You don't drive your cart onto the green. Uh, they were the the cart. The girls and the, the beverage carts said that they they got all the got the participants were disgusting and sleazy and misogynistic and gross. The one guy actually passed out drunk right beside the main, like the entrance to the parking lot because he was waiting for his wife and he passed out on the ground drunk. And this is a tournament that started in the morning on a Saturday. And it just got me thinking like, this is, this is common kind of for golf tournaments. And I would imagine perhaps other large events in a public setting. And I just don't understand that mentality. Like, look, I get it. We've all had too much to drink at one point in our life. And sometimes we get out of hand and we need to be reined in. But I, th I think some people think that they have permission to be idiots in, in situations locations? like this. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you're right. But, but, but there's a huge difference, though, between, you know, we all know our limits, right? I'm sure every single person in this room knows, okay, I'm reaching that point where I've had too much. There is a big difference between too much and passed out drunk. Passed out drunk is just a total lack of control when it comes to that. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. I uh, used to work in the pro shop of a of a smaller golf course uh, in the rural area, and saw this quite often. Uh, most of the time, the, the the people that were playing in the tournaments were were fairly good to deal with. But every once in a while, we'd have situations like the one you just described, Brett, uh, where 
uh, not respecting the rules of the golf course, uh, and also getting to the point where you know we and and to work there, we all had to have our safe cards and to, to make the call on when to cut them off. And trust me, that is not an easy conversation uh, with someone who's not in their right frame of mind. Yeah, I've been there. I've uh, worked at a beer vendor before I worked here, and when you have to tell someone, no, sorry, I can't serve you, you have to leave. And they get so angry with you, and they start yelling, swearing, and, you know, it's just, leave, man. Leave me alone. Just go. Well, that's what I was wondering, too. Like, if you're in a setting like this, and it doesn't have to be a golf course. It could be, I don't know, in a park or something or some other place where there's where alcohol is being consumed. Uh, and if, if the behavior, it's, if you bump into it, you encounter it, and it affects you and the people you're with, do you, what do you do? Do you say anything? I'm always reluctant because yeah. when people are that drunk, there's always the threat of violence. No yeah. question. Even when it is your job to do it, it can be very difficult when you've got people who are acting outside the boundaries of what is respectful and what's acceptable. I can remember having to take a regular customer into the kitchen at uh, one of my restaurant jobs back in the past as a manager and saying, I don't care who you are. I know you come here damn near every day. But you won't talk to the people that work for me in that tone of voice. You won't use that language in front of them or my other customers. And you're going to have to leave. And it's like 10, 11 people. And that's just sometimes you just got to lay down the law. But golf courses and, you know, you see it at sporting events as well. It's super commonplace where people overindulge. They, they I don't know if they get in that comfort zone. They figure that this is the time and place to relax. I respect all your ability to relax, but I'll never forget. BC Play Stadium. They used to have this great big poster and it was a guy with a donkey head <laughs> and people all around him looking at him. And the, the message was there doesn't need to be one in every crowd. But it seems as though there yep. is. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a good movie. My, my dad uh, used to, I think yeah, once upon a time I had season tickets. My mom and dad had season tickets to the Bombers. And they said there were two guys who sat, I think, in front of them. And they would be passed out. Drunk by half, they would be drunk by the time they got to the game, and then they would be passed out drunk by halftime. Had to be on the east side. So, so what's the point? What's the, the point of side. having season tickets? Then? I know that's like, yeah. they, the bombers. The bomber games were an excuse for these guys to just go out and get completely wasted drunk. Just like a concert, I've seen. I've seen well, yep. like, probably like an eighteen-year-old just passed out in front of me, and I'm going like. The band's not even on yet. What are you I, did doing? That, <laughs> I did that once. I went to a concert once, and we had done some pre-gaming, and I, I guess I overindulged, and uh, it ruined the concert for me, so never again. When I go to concerts, I usually wait until the show is well underway before I start to imbibe. Whistled in by the referee, Kim Murphy, and here we go. The Argo play, and here comes a bomber blitz. They're sending everybody. Bethel Thompson to the end zone. Touchdown. S.J. Green. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's one that um, definitely hurts, definitely stings. I mean, uh, we come up, to, we go up 21-0, and, you know, you think that uh, it's going to be, you know, you still want to keep making plays, you fill in, fill in the gas, and, you know, a couple of our turns and change momentum, and 
Um, we just never got it back, and you know, uh, we came out in the second half, too many two and outs, and uh, you know, we kind of just fell apart. I mean, my message to the guys is just we need to we need to come out with whatever attitude we had before. We need to flush that and and, and start over again, and, and and just get that hunger back and keep our foot in the gas and be more consistent overall. And Harris to the 50, the 45, the 40, the 30. Andrew Harris, the 25, the 20, the 15, the 10, 5. Touchdown. Blue Bombers did Andrew Harris ever turn it on once he popped through that hole. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to. You, you guys seem to go away from the run, which was working so well. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you averaged 10 yards a carry, I think, and, uh, and yet the... For periods, it seemed like they went away from you, and sometimes we, we find that a little bit difficult to understand. And it, if you guys make a first down there after the fumble recovery, probably the game's over, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. And Bethel Thompson back to pass. Pressure comes. The ball's on the ground, and let's see who's got it. Willie Jefferson has recovered at the Argo, or the Bomber, rather, 29-yard line. Well, Willie Jefferson's had himself a game here tonight, and there is a massive play. Well, you've been playing this game for a long time. I guess uh, this proves, if nothing else, Matt Nichols, that uh, it probably doesn't go down easy, but all things are possible. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, and just, uh, I mean, I think it's a reminder to everyone. I mean, we talked about it during the week a lot, but, you know, it's all about believing it and coming out and playing your best game because, I mean, I knew – Watching film of them, that was a, a good football team, not a team that was 0-6. I mean, they should have beat BC and Calgary and just beat us. I mean, they could easily be, uh, you know, whatever, 3-4 and four or, or even better. So, I mean, um, I mean, it's something we need to show up and, and make more plays and go and earn it a little bit more than we did. So this uh, is likely the final play of the game unless there's a penalty. From the Bomber 30-yard line, Matt Nichols back to pass. Down the middle he goes with it, no good. Intended for Lawler, he was going to flip it back to somebody, but he couldn't hang on. And the Winnipeg Blue Bombers have lost a game that it was almost inconceivable, I think, to everyone that they couldn't lose. But sport is ever thus. It produces all sorts of surprises, and for the Bombers and their fans, this is about as unpleasant a surprise as could be delivered to them seven games into the season. Yeah, they're not going to like this one. It's going to be an ugly week uh, in Bomberland. Do you think there's a, a mental or a psychological consequence to losing to uh, a winless football team this publicized? Uh, well, the hope is that the consequence is our guys go to work with a fever, you know, that's that they haven't felt before. Speak for itself. Winnipeg Blue Bombers blow a 20 to nothing lead in Toronto, lose 28-27. They come home, they'll be home today, they'll get ready for Calgary at IG Field next Thursday.
What is happening at Portage Place? Well, approval from three of the four entities required to sign off on a sale of a downtown Winnipeg shopping mall to Toronto developer are in place. The last signature required is from the federal government. MP Robert Falkenlet said the government asked for the delay to, to consult with community groups and to make sure the new plans will, quote, suit everyone's needs. Global's Brittany Greenslade tells us more. This is a deal that many people thought was a no-brainer, but now the federal government is pumping the brakes and asking for more time. The federal government has asked for a 30-day delay on the sale of Portage Place. Last month, Toronto-based Starlight Investments made a nearly $70 million bid on the troubled downtown mall. The deal includes not just the building, but the land it sits on and the underground parkade, which is owned by the North Portage Development Corporation. But it also requires the approval of all three levels of government. It got a unanimous green light from the city. The province also gave it the go-ahead. But there's been some pushback. In recent weeks, a number of Indigenous and community groups expressed concern about the sale, saying it's an important neighbourhood gathering place. And the feds agree, saying more consultation is needed. Well, I think the federal government, what we'd like to do is just take our time to do some due diligence to think about uh, the long-term impacts. This mall is extremely important. It was built in the downtown core for revitalization efforts. And there are many groups that use it on a continuous uh, basis, uh, whether they are Indigenous, newcomers, or uh, just people uh, from uh, who come downtown to work. But we have to make sure that this infrastructure, uh, if it's going to be developed in, in the long term, now it's unclear what the next steps are, but as far as the federal government's concerned, there's no rush. Nothing like getting in the way of a $300 million redevelopment of a property that has really not lived up to its promise. That's the editorialization. Brian Pallister confirmed that the province has signed off on the deal. The Premier says he isn't concerned. This process is going to take time, uh, and uh, we're all optimistic that the, we'll, we'll get progress made on that file. Failure to approve the potential $300 million sale and redevelopment deal by the end of the month was supposed to trigger a $1.5 million penalty paid for by the Forks. But in a statement to Global News, Starlight Investment says, quote, This delay is not a deterrent to us. We remain committed to the prospect of working with all stakeholders for a positive outcome. That was Global News at 6, anchor Lisa Dutton with comments from the developer who has this agreement in place, Starlight. And, well, they'd like to just kind of get on with it, but they're saying, hey, we need a little bit more time. We'll, we'll be okay, at least for now. Well, good for them. But th- what bothered me about that, and look, I salute Robert Falk and Willette for, for stepping up. People have spoken out, and it's the, the job of elected officials to listen to what people are saying, and then bring those concerns up when necessary. But he said uh, that it was built for revitalization efforts, and I would you said it hasn't really lived up to its expectations. I would say it didn't revitalize anything. And, okay, it's a gathering place, but really it's a shopping mall. It's a place where commerce is supposed to occur, where people go in to buy goods and services. It's not a, it's not a community hall. No, it's owned by a private entity. could be closed at any point in time. Tomorrow, today, at 5 o'clock, you know what? We're done with this. The owner out of Vancouver could say, yeah, we're just going to shut her down. Yeah, so I, I'm i kind of baffled by this, so hopefully it doesn't stall, because that's that's just classic Winnipeg, right? Like, oh, we, we could get going, but ah, let's, 
let's do a study or let's do some consultation. Let's just drag this out. Yeah, we didn't see anything when the for sale sign was on the front of the property. Oh, now that there's a sold sign, now we have a problem. Looking for something to do this weekend, we have a great idea for you. It's the 130th Icelandic Festival of Manitoba, Islandingadagarin, and we are joined on the line by Grant Stephenson, who is president of the Icelandic Festival in Gimli. Grant, good morning to you, sir. Uh, good morning from sunny, warm Gimli. So I got to ask you first, because I ask every year, did I say it Correctly, Isla, is it is it Dagerin or Dagerin? Uh, Dagerin is better, but you uh, you pretty close to nailed it. Uh, isn't it Dagerin? Uh, it's uh, it's not an easy one to say. You did very well. Okay, good. So I'll, I'll have to remember that next year. Eastland Dagerin. So uh, the weather for this weekend looks sensational. That probably has you guys quite excited for this weekend. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you can't, uh, you couldn't order a better weather scenario and, and uh, we're looking forward to a fantastic festival as a result. Although look, we're rain or shine. Hopefully it's mostly shine. It's looking that way. So that's great. 130 years of celebrating this incredible culture in this uh, community that is really unlike any other community, at least as it pertains to, uh, to Icelandic People, tell us about Gimli and and its connection to Iceland, because not everybody knows the story. Everybody should, but I don't think they do. Yeah, so Gimli uh, was basically established by a group of Icelandic settlers that came over due to harsh conditions in Iceland, uh, primarily due to volcanic activity in the late 1800s, and a uh, whole, whole group of them settled uh, on, the shore, on the west shore of Lake Winnipeg, uh, and uh, they were originally going to go up to up to Riverton, but the uh, conditions on Lake Winnipeg were really harsh as they were heading north in October, if you can believe it, uh, to start their settlement. And so they cut them loose at the White Rock in Willow Island near Gimli, and the settlement uh, had a few uh, obviously very tough years, uh, difficult conditions uh, initially, and then uh, they got their legs under them, and uh, yeah, we've got what we've got now, which is a fantastic, beautiful uh, community on the west shore of Lake Winnipeg. And 130 years, like... That's a long time to, to maintain a tradition. Is there ever any, has there ever been a point where maybe there was a lack of motivation or maybe less interest in this? Or is it something that just has maintained or managed to just keep churning along year after year? We like to say in the Icelandic community, we're small, but we're mighty. And so we've always uh, had the determination to keep this festival going. And in fact, it is one of a handful of, of the longest uh, continuously running cultural festivals uh, in Canada, so we're proud of our, uh, you know, our piece of the multicultural fabric in Canada. I've had a lot of fun up there at this festival over the years. Uh, what can we expect this year, Grant? So uh, this year, look, it's uh, it's something for everyone as usual. We've got music going on all weekend. Uh, we've got a mini folk festival on the Sunday evening and music in the harbor area all weekend. We've got sports. There's a uh, five-kilometer race, which is new this year on the Sunday morning. I think it might be sold out. In fact, it was so popular. Uh, we got running races. Uh, we've got uh, Frisnock, which is where you set up the post about 30 feet apart with a bottle on it and knock it off with the Frisbee. <laughs> that's happening on the, yeah, it's, it, just, it just goes on and on. That's, that's actually happening on the uh, Sunday. 
Um, uh, the big uh, fun event, the spectator event that everybody loves to watch, there's a couple of them, but one of them is the Islandinga Dunk, where we had two people on a pole over the harbor, and they uh, they battle each other with pillows until someone falls off, so people love to watch that one. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, the Viking uh, Village, where we have the reenactors that are living uh, like authentic Vikings did, and there's wood carvers and jewelers, and they do a Viking battle a couple of times a day, so uh, yeah, fantastic. And is it still, do people still call it the Viking? It's the the the, the, the hotel, I think the, the bar itself used to be called, was it Two Friends Saloon? Going back now, I have no idea what it's I called now. I don't know if I want to admit whether I know that or not. <laughs> <laughs> We're not in America, Grant, but we will allow you the fifth on this one if you'd like to, if you'd like to plea that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, yeah, it is still the Viking. And, and sure, there's a couple of bars in town, the Viking and the Ship and Plow and then the Oldie. And then they all have fun things going on all weekend. And then, of course, we got the new Viking Park, which is the park around the Viking statue that has uh, authentic cultural elements. And it's, uh, it's a must-see when, when you're here in town, too. How many people come out to the festival on a yearly basis? We we estimate it to, to be around thirty to forty thousand people that are going to make it uh, to the festival. Now, of course, what happens is everybody that's got a cottage here has all their friends and, and distant cousins and people that they've hardly met because everybody packs it in and campgrounds and everything are full. But because we're only a one hour north on highways, uh, you know, seven, eight, or nine, we get thousands of, of day trippers too. So. It's, uh, you know, the more the merrier. You know, we got these food trucks and vendors and crafters and music and, uh, you know, buskers. It's just, a, it's just an amazing time. For those that have been, they know what I'm talking about. For those that haven't, make the drive out. Icelandicfestival.com for more information. Grant Stephenson, president of the Icelandic Festival. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Okay, cheers, guys. Have a great day. <laughs> Frisnock, the game that if you play it right, you remember the beginning, but not necessarily the end. I love Frisnock. It's so much fun. And I love the Icelandic Festival of Manitoba. I've, I have so many fond memories of spending time in Gimli over the August long weekend. The 130th annual Islandingadagarin. There's something happening this Monday, and I got a preview yesterday at the Assiniboia Downs. They invited people out for their sort of preview lunch, amazing food as always, and and amazing hospitality, and an amazing presentation from the CEO of Assiniboia Downs, Darren Dunn, Double D, joining us live on 680 CJOB for a preview of the Manitoba Derby. Mr. Dunn, good morning to you, sir. Hey, good to talk to you again, Brett. Uh, Nice to see you out there yesterday. Good morning, Greg. Yeah, <laughs> see, you see, I knew I was going to get some sort of treatment like that. I have an apology prepared, Darren. I had a previous engagement. I could not reschedule yesterday afternoon, so I regret not being there. Manitoba Derby is such a big deal. It's such a big part of our history. No and apology I needed. should Listen, have been have there. representation of OB out there for sure. Right on. So just tell us a little bit about the history of this race, Darren, because it has incredible roots. And even if you're not a horse raceman or woman, uh, this is this is a really big deal and has been for an awful long time. Yeah, it really has. And I appreciate that. Uh, 71 versions uh, set to go on Monday and uh, the 71st version 
actually goes all the way back to 1930 in Manitoba at uh, Whittier Park, Polo Park. There was a brief break where uh, the race was reformed as the Canadian Derby uh, and headed out west uh, to Edmonton. We reclaimed that when Assiniboia Downs was built after the close of Polo Park, where the shopping mall now stands. And uh, in 1960, uh, it returned to uh, Winnipeg as the Manitoba Derby at Assiniboia Downs, brought back by uh, Jack Hardy. And uh, we've had it ever since. So uh, it's our biggest race. It's our Super Bowl, our Stanley Cup Finals, our World Series. And uh, we look forward to it every year. And Darren, I've got the program in my hand here. And inside there's this vintage picture from 1969 showcasing the winner, which was Fire and Desire. But then in the background, there's a young lady wearing a rather nice dress and an elegant hat. And you indeed have a Derby Day hat contest. So I wanted to ask you about this because that's always one of the big things. You see all the women running around with these amazing hats. What is it with horse racing and hats? How did those two things end up tying together? Well, great question. I don't know if I could uh, spit out the origin, but it certainly is synonymous with horse racing, probably more so with the Kentucky Derby and then carried on throughout the world and and certainly at Assiniboia Downs, whether it's a fascinator or uh, a fascinating hat. uh, The efforts are there. The ladies love to wear them and uh, the chapeaus are available for the men as well if they want to come out. And we have three different categories, including a children's category, $100 bill uh, ready to go in each of those categories. And, uh, you know, to that end, it really just adds to the atmosphere and, and the visuals of uh, what's a unique day on our calendar and, and a full day and really a family day where it's it's not just about the ponies. If you, you don't want to wager a couple of bucks, you can certainly watch them get saddled. You can uh, pick a name or pick a color, uh, you know, for the kids, the pony rides, the bouncy castles and uh, face painting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we ramp up the food, and, uh, you know, it's truly an experience. And, and for a lot of folks, it's the one they circle on the calendar is the, the time to come out to the Downs. And uh, we'd love to have everybody every day, but uh, certainly if they can join us uh, maybe back from the lake and uh, round out their long weekend in the afternoon, because it is a rare afternoon race card, and uh, we're, we've got it ready to go. So if I'm a racehorse in Manitoba, how do I qualify for this? Is this the culmination of part of my career? Is it a stepping stone? Tell us how it fits in, Darren. Sure, you know, it would be a stepping stone if, uh, you know, a lot of things have to uh, go right and, and stars align. It's very difficult to, to uh, have a horse go in the Manitoba Derby, and specifically because the criteria, first and foremost, you have to be three years old, and that's the only age category allowed in. You can come from anywhere in North America. In this case, we have five local horses, and we have three uh, coming from outside of the province. And, you know, it's the absolute elite level of three-year-olds, certainly at Assiniboia Downs and certainly in Western Canada. Uh, we a lot of times have had representation from Toronto, not this year, But bottom line is you have to be at a peak form, peak condition, the right age. Uh, You need to pony up the money to get in, which is $1,500 from the ownership group. And a lot of things just have to work well together uh, to run even a distance of a mile and an eighth. It's It's the longest distance that we'll run this year. Uh, It's a challenging distance, well within the capability of a lot of these horses. They're bred to go far. But in saying that, uh, horse racing is more of a sprinting business nowadays. So a lot of unique uh, things have to work well. $75,000 purse. There are eight horses in the field. Who's the favorite? Well, the favorite's actually the horse coming in from Alberta and uh, a horse by the name of Call It a Wrap, 9 to 5 on the morning line, just under $6 for a $2 win bet. But great local representation, a horse by the name of Moscow Minister was uh, bought by local ownership uh, out of Churchill Downs in Kentucky, brought up here specifically for this race. And uh, a horse by the name of Life's Been Good So Far, 
great opportunity for some really local folks here who've, who've been loyal to the Downs for many years and it'd be wonderful to greet them in the winner's circle. So, you know, it's going to be a wide open race, a lot of speed, a lot of closers, and uh, I think it's, it's easy to say you're going to get a good uh, return for any effort to, uh, on any horse you're going to back. And it's mostly sunny in 26 on Monday, so it's going to be a great day at Assiniboia Downs. CEO of the Downs, Darren Dunn, joining us live on the start. Darren, thank you very much for this. Appreciate it, guys. It, the racing starts at one fifteen on Manitoba Derby Day, Monday, August 5th. And like you said, it's not just the racing. They've got the hat contest, all kinds of family fun. The food at the Downs is amazing, as I learned. Uh, I, I love going to the Downs for their lunch when they invite us out. It's like, oh, it's a Cinnaboy Downs Day. I know I'm going to eat. Some of the best food in Winnipeg. Yeah. Without question. So uh, glad you made it out there. I regret that I did not. Get out to the Downs if you can on, on Monday. It'll be a great way to celebrate Terry Fox Day. Mackling and McGarry McNabb is back next week. We'll replace McNabb with another M, the main ingredient, co-host of the main ingredient, not co-host, host of the main ingredient, Kevin Bergen. He is co-organizer of an event we want to tell you about right now. He's so talented, he doesn't need a co-host, No, I think is really what we're trying to say here. It's called Winnipeg Beer Festival. It's happening at Fort Gibraltar on August 17th. In studio with us, we have Kevin Bergen, host of the main ingredient. We have Sean Branson, who is... Organizer of Winnipeg Beer Festival, he's caterer at Fort Gibraltar and owner at Promenade Cafe and Wine at uh, Provence and Taché. Uh, consequently, Sean, I live on Provence now, mm-hmm. and uh, I've been to Promenade for breakfast a couple of times, yeah. and it's amazing. So well, thank thanks, you for thanks, that. Yeah, and Darren Wanless, co-owner of Winnipeg Brew Works, in studio with us. Gentlemen, good morning to you. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Darren, why don't we start with you, uh, because your beer, the the Pilsner, is now available at the golf course I play at in LaSalle, and I was really excited to see that they had a local beer in there. Are you finding, are you and your your colleagues in the local beer community finding it easier to infiltrate businesses and get your stuff out there? Uh, it has been getting easier, especially with um, hometown people like Sean and, uh, and the restaurant at Promenade. Um, there's still some challenges. There's, uh, it's all education, what we find. It's not just with the people who are buying the beer, but also the uh, restaurant owners, the bars, the nightclubs, because they still are tr- – it's not that they're addicted to the big beer, but they're slowly realizing they, they do have a choice, and it's local. And it's actually beer that's brewed here in Manitoba, not shipped from many provinces away. So it's just mainly that education, getting people to – see the light through the trees. I think I just read recently that uh, the local breweries are seeing an increase of about uh, 10% overall in consumption, and the big brewers are seeing about a decline of 5% in yep. terms of their sales in this marketplace. So you're doing something right yes. in terms of getting the message out, and people are listening. And just like food, perhaps, Sean, and Kevin, I I want your uh, take on this as well. It's that training of the palate. I know when Mm -hmm. I started tasting different wines and learning more about wine, I I went from really basic knowledge and basic understanding and enjoyment to really getting into things that were a little bit more intricate and uh, much more delicious, quite frankly. Yeah, there's a whole variety of different flavors that they, they can do with the hops, with the aging, even putting things in barrels that can that can basically 
um, make different flavors. So, and, and uh, there's a wide variety. Most of the time we think of a lighter beer and a heavier beer. And, uh, you know, light beer is great in the summertime, you know, and heavier beer is more of a meal. But there's so many different varieties. And the great thing is the local products. There's so many varieties that are coming through them that you don't need to have uh, these imported or uh, larger beers. Uh, 85% of my beer list is local and, and we can cover off all the, all the, the basics. Kevin? You know, I paid you for that introduction that you guys gave to me. I love you for it. Yeah, I, I agree with Sean. It's almost like you are, are you eat regular food, like whatever food is from your country, and now you get a chance to eat ethnic food in different flavors and stuff. So these guys can do things that, you know, I don't think a lot of macrobreweries would, would try to do or, or can do. They're busy making their, their brand in a, in a really large way. Plus, they have test batches. You can go into any brewery, and these guys have test batches that, you know, they, they kind of— uh, make for people to see if, you know, if it's good or not. So anyway, there's just a lot of variety. And I think that along with, um, with the variety is, yeah, it's, it's a bit of education so that people can actually know that these guys are out there making great beer. So Sean, Winnipeg Beer Festival, it's uh, what is this, the third year now? Yeah, it's the third year. And, and uh, one of the main purposes was uh, to give uh, local breweries a chance to showcase their beers to a large, uh, large audience. Uh, and it's at Fort Gibraltar and, and it's a great opportunity to market their, their products. And even for myself, when I wanted to support local and we wanted to try all these beers, there's so many to try. But to have all uh, 15 brewers and then two distillers in one spot uh, to be able to sample, you know, two to four of their products, it's phenomenal even for myself to do my research for my restaurant, but then also what I'll be drinking later uh, on, on a personal note as well. Who are the two distillers? Capital K, I guess, is one. Uh, there's Capital K, and then the, the other one is uh, Dead Horse Cider. So it's a new cidery that uh, is going to be uh, there as well. It's from Winkler. They're mm-hmm. all the rage in the Okanagan cideries, and uh, that's uh, probably the next thing that's coming, would you think? Uh, no? Yes and no. Um, it's, uh, cideries are actually, they've been around for a long time, but you're seeing more and more like now there's two in the in the province. Um, and uh, some of the breweries want to go half and half. Like maybe you can do a cider here or there. Okay. But there are different rules for ciders than there are for beer. So that's one of the things that the MBLL has been talking about making easier is because technically if a brewery decides to do a cider tomorrow, it's a different set of rules for that cider than it is. Same thing with mead. So, yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> we love that, right? When the rules change and the game is essentially the same, right, Darren? It's not uh, anything that we want to see. But here we are, and uh, that's that's been one of the big obstacles, and we're overcoming that, Brett. And I'm wondering, Darren, is it too an obstacle, like uh, Sean mentioned, 15? Like, it wasn't long ago where there were a couple of local beers, and now there are a lot, and you guys are all producing many different flavors. Is it getting crowded? Um, no, I don't think so. The, again, what it is, it's just that it's getting to the people who haven't tried a beer. Like, uh, I'll put my dad on the spot if he's listening. Hi, dad. Um, and <laughs> like, oh, I remember bringing craft beer home. Like, even for me, like back in the day, um, like, uh, one of my go-to beers has always been like, say, Fort Gary or Half Pints, because they've been slugging it out for years. And God bless, uh, guys like Dave Rudge over at Half Pints. And because when I would take some of his beers home, like the stir stick stout, my dad's not going to drink that. Like I'll try, but he's not. But then you'd also try to get him to drink something, say like the St. James Pale Ale. So now that we have our pills, so it's a, we called it pills because that's German for Pilsner, then getting this and he likes it. And now his friends are liking it. 
And we're telling them that, listen, guys, that this isn't a secret. This is technically what beer tasted like before the 50s, before it was mass produced and shipped across the country. You could have gotten a beer in your local town, in a brewery here, and this is what it would have tasted like. It's nothing special. This is just like a lot of the cooking that Sean does in the restaurant. It's home cook style meals and like getting back to basics, unprocessed, quick, fresh beer. Well, so, you, can, you can try it all at Winnipeg Beer Festival. It's happening August 17th at Fort Gibraltar. I was there for the first one. It's a spectacular place. It was the first time I'd ever been there outside of winter. Mm-hmm. So it was wild <laughs> to be there in the summer. It's a great place for an event. And you can just Google Winnipeg Beer Festival 2019 and you'll find the page on Eventbrite. Also, just want to quickly mention, Darren, you brought in a beer that you made specifically for Folklorama. Oh, uh, yeah. So this, uh, my Ukrainian neighbor, he and I were sitting around... Uh, uh, the pool uh, too many times, and he's a big supporter and a big uh, volunteer at the Ukrainian Kiev Pavilion for Folklorama. So they're one of the original uh, pavilions. So it's their 50th anniversary. So we came up with the Golden, and that's Golden in uh, Ukraine. Okay. And so it's a beer that we made. We brought in hops from the Ukraine. Fantastic. So it's going to be at the pavilion on tap, but we made 3,000 cans. are actually just being canned today, so yeah. they're going to be available in the LCs, at beer stores. Um, and then we're going to bring a keg to the beer fest as well. Mm-hmm. So people, if you don't get a chance to go down to, to um, the Fulkorama, to the Ukraine Kiev pavilion, definitely do. But uh, we'll also have it at the beer fest. Sean Branson is organizer of Winnipeg Beer Festival, caterer at Fort Gibraltar, owner at Promenade Cafe and Wine. Darren Wanless is co-owner of Winnipeg Brew Works. And Kevin Birkin, host of The Main Ingredient, which airs weekends on 680 CJOB. Gentlemen, thank you very much. We're out of time, but we uh, look forward to this. And we want to tell everybody listening, get your tickets for this. It's super fun. Thanks for coming in, guys. Do you mind if I leave some beer for you? I would not mind that at all. (laughs) Greg, do you have any objections? I'll think about it. Jeff Forte? I'm I'm down. <laughs> Greg, I know you'd like to spend some time. Is it Lester Beach? Lester Beach, actually heading up there today for the weekend. Uh, last weekend, we were at Lee River, and you could see some LJ in the water there. Uh, but social media was a buzz with some shocking and... You hate to say it, but we're starting to get used to these images on Lake Winnipeg. This was on the east side, Victoria Beach, Leicester Hillside. We're suffering through that milky, I liken it to a kale milkshake or smoothie (laughs) is kind of what it looks like. Lapping up on the shores of Lake Winnipeg, that beautiful white sand was essentially useless to anybody. And uh, to talk about this... Uh, we're welcoming in-studio executive director of Lake Winnipeg Foundation, Alexis Canoe. And uh, Alexis, thanks for coming in to see us today. I know you've seen these images up close and personal, but the reaction on social media last weekend was one that I'm starting to hear from people that I've never heard before that are going, we've got to do something. So what is causing this, first and foremost? Let's start at the beginning. Sure. The cause of these blooms is phosphorus. That's a nutrient that we all need. It's essential to life. It comes from a diversity of sources across the watershed and flows into Lake Winnipeg. And so we need to reduce phosphorus load to the lake in order to address these algae blooms. Why do other... uh, I won't assume that others can handle it differently, but do other lakes do... 
larger bodies of water elsewhere manage phosphorus differently? What is about Lake Winnipeg uh, that it seems to have this horrible relationship with phosphorus? There, there are other lakes we can look to and learn from, and one that we look to often is Lake Erie, so an eastern Great Lake. Also suffered from blooms of the nature that we're seeing on Lake Winnipeg. Back in the 80s, Uh, municipalities around Lake Winnipeg dealt with industrial and municipal sources of phosphorus, things like wastewater treatment plants, and they saw a reduction in the blooms uh, when they took those actions. Now we're unfortunately seeing blooms reoccurring on Lake Erie, and that's due to agricultural sources of phosphorus, runoff from fields, manure, etc. And so we also need to tackle those sources. But what we can learn from Lake Erie is that addressing municipal sources, sewage treatment plants can make a difference. Now, I understand that uh, you're quite unhappy with the city of Winnipeg right now. Why is that? Well, we proposed to the city an interim phosphorus removal uh, solution for their north end treatment plant, which is the single largest point source of phosphorus to the lake. We've been talking with the city, we've been talking with provincial officials for a year about this solution, and we heard uh, earlier this week that they've rejected that option. Uh, They've apparently considered a number of interim options for phosphorus reduction, and instead of taking any action, they've asked for another two years to further develop a plan. Yeah, I've got a quote here from Adam Campbell, City of Winnipeg spokesperson. Thank you for Winnipeg's son uh, for printing this. Uh, Here's the quote. Here's the statement. Chemical phosphorus removal, such as described by the Lake Winnipeg Foundation proposal, generates an inert sludge that would put a significant sludge load on the city's system. And they're citing that as the reason for turning down this proposal. What was the proposal? Was it to to add a compound, a chemical, in order to aid in the digestion of the phosphorus? How does it work? It wasn't adding anything. It was adjusting something that we're already adding. So our plant uses a chemical called ferric chloride. It's used at two points in the treatment process, and it's used for operational reasons. It reduces odor, and it prevents the pipes from clogging. If we adjust the point at which we add ferric chloride to our treatment system, we'll actually be able to achieve a 70% reduction in phosphorus. So simply by moving an existing chemical to a different point in the waste treatment stream, it can start to act as a phosphorus removal agent. But the city is saying that by uh, chemical phosphorus removal, such as described in your proposal, would create a sludge that would put a significant load on the city system. Yeah, we, the experts we worked with uh, understood that there was a potential increase in sludge, and they calculated that to be about 11% increase. Whether you want to call that significant, I don't know. I also know that our sludge management here in at the North End plant is not operating at full capacity currently. It needs to be regularly maintained. The digesters that process this sludge need to be cleared out. And we also have one digester that's completely non-operational. So if we get that up and running through ongoing repairs and maintenance we'd have the capacity we need. Do you feel like you're fighting an uphill battle here, Alexis? Because at every turn, I seem to hear from different sources, different advocates for the lake, uh, people who have business that is connected to the river and eventually the lake that say, yeah, we can't do that. We can't afford to do this right now. We have always these reasons as to why we cannot act. Don't hear a lot of groups other than yours saying it's time to act and the the time to act was years ago. I feel like we're going in circles. 
Uh, we've been here before. The city asked for an extension. This isn't the first time they've asked for an extension. Their original deadline to meet phosphorus limits was December 31st of 2014. And there was a strong push there to have them take responsibility for their infrastructure's impact on the health of the lake. We're back in that exact same position now in 2019, five years later. What we've heard from the city is they want more time to come up with a plan. Their extension is not going to result in phosphorus limits being met by 2021. They'll just be presenting a plan at that point, if we're not just back in the same position that we're in right now. Yeah, and this just isn't about us being able to go to the beach. Let's not get that interpretation. This is this is uh, what the, the ninth, tenth, eleventh largest fresh body water body of uh, water on the yeah, planet. Yeah, the tenth largest freshwater lake on the planet. So there you go, and and we're killing it. And I'm going to use the word. I don't know if you'll say it that strongly, Alexis, but we did have a listener who says, "Hey, uh, we're, we're hearing about the city's responsibility." This gentleman has been in the ag uh, business and feels as though that ag has been agriculture has been the scapegoat for a long time. What's what's the truth here, as you know it? Well, it's a both and situation. We need to deal with both municipal sources of phosphorus and rural sources of phosphorus. So we need to be looking on both sides of the perimeter for solutions to this problem. There is no silver, single silver bullet here, but it's going to require all of us to step up. And part of the challenge is it seems that everybody's waiting for somebody else to go first. And we're not going to get anywhere with that kind of approach. When this slime appears in the lake, is it safe to go in the water? Uh, well, it, no, I wouldn't. I absolutely would not go in the water if we saw that pancake batter, that kale smoothie in the lake. We can't know by looking at a bloom whether or not it contains toxins, but we do know that these blooms can produce toxins. So it's definitely something that I know that that folks that are regular users of the beach steer clear of. You keep your pets out, you keep your kids out when that when those waves turn green. We've eliminated so many of the marshlands and the natural... Filters that helped keep the lake pristine for years and years, for long before, you know, uh, settlers came to this part of the world and, and conducted agriculture on the land. So now you add agriculture and all this thing that things that we've been doing on the land, and at the same time, we've eliminated nature's filter. It's a real, it's a double whammy on top of all the sewage we're dumping into the river and thus the, the lake. Absolutely. And one of the uh, programs that the Lake Winnipeg Foundation runs is a community-based monitoring program within the the rural watersheds. We're looking at phosphorus load from smaller drainage areas. And what we found through that data is that the more water that flows into the lake over the course of a growing season, the more spring melt, the more runoff there is, the more phosphorus it's carrying. So when we lose wetlands and their capacity to hold water back on the land, we're exacerbating this problem. Is any of this at all tied to hydro development in northern Manitoba and Lake Manitoba essentially being a giant reservoir for hydro Manitoba Hydro? There, there is certain are certainly impacts of the hydro dam. Those tend to be uh, downstream of, of the dam. What we're looking at more is the upstream source of phosphorus. So when we're talking about phosphorus getting into the lake, our concern is inflows. And those inflows are increasing when we aren't holding water back in the landscape. We have multiple inflows. We know that the Red River is contributing up to 70% of the phosphorus load to the lake. We've lost the vast majority of wetlands in the Red River watershed. Alexis Canoe is Executive Director of Lake Winnipeg Foundation. Love the passion that you bring to this debate. Thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is back on Monday. 
Thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Start. Greg, we tried to connect with our guest, I guess it was last week, and oh, right. something happened, and yes. unfortunately we didn't, but hey, better late than never. <laughs> I think we're on to a different topic. Yeah, We wanted to talk about uh, free agency and a couple of different things that were going down with Murat Atesh from The uh, Athletic, but... Uh, Oh, yeah, it was the, uh, what do you call it, arbitration arbitration hearing for Andrew Kopp. Yeah, that feels like forever ago. Murat, how you doing, my man? Doing quite well. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for taking some time with us, and thanks for compiling this list that uh, other writers on The Athletic, Murat Atesh, by the way, covers Winnipeg Jets, Winnipeg Sports uh, for The Athletic, subscription-based magazine, and, uh, well, really, they just crank out the content, and it's one of the things that I pay for every month that I do not regret paying for. Uh, Murat, uh, this whole idea of uh, the best minimum Minnesotans in the NHL and Ontarians in the NHL. Who started this uh, bamboozled uh, attempt at uh, passing summer? I wish I could tell you the answer to that. But at one one day at the Athletic and our little message channels that we have on Slack, I just noticed the topic explode, and everybody sort of dug in and got really passionate about the region that they were from or had connections to. I think Michael Russo's team Minnesota was the first one that I sort of participated in. He had some questions about some of the analytics he wanted to throw into that. So I kind of got a really good taste, and then I realized that, you know what, nobody was going to do it better than Team Manitoba was going to do it. Um, and Oba, yo, I needed to get into it. Well, on this weekend where we celebrate one of the greatest Manitobans ever, Terry Fox, it's sort of fitting that we speak to you uh, today and look at this. Now, you broke things down and you had uh, 12 plus a couple of extra forwards and the six defensemen, couple extra, but goaltender. You had a difficult time, and it's like I've been doing this in my head for years and years, especially when the NHL was not an issue in Winnipeg, uh, when there was no Winnipeg Jets. I would always look around the league and see, hey, how would Manitoba do against uh, any other jurisdiction? There was a time when Manitoba-born goalies were, I mean, we already are home to the greatest goaltender of all time, Terry Sawchuk, but you had Alec Belfort to choose from, Bill Ranford, Ron Hextall, Ken Reggett, Glenn Hanlon. I know those last two names may be uh, not uh, the, the place you want to hang your hat, but they were bona fide options. Yeah, I, I, I think that you've named it exactly. For for decades, those were goaltenders' heroes, I think, across Manitoba. I'll tell you very truthfully that Bill Ranford was who I pretended to be on the streets of Pinawa um, and just learned that he was Manitoban kind of in my, my teenagehood or adulthood. And, and he's not even the top guy on your list. I mean, Terry Sawchuk. So um, in this case, our number one center was obvious, Jonathan Tate. So we know Travis Hamannick and, and, and Travis Sanheimer are going to hold down our defense. James Reimer is a strong option in goal for sure. So we went to Marwina, Manitoba and, and picked up James Reimer for, for our goaltender. And then it gets controversial. So I had to get into a little bit of history. There were some land claims about Northwestern Ontario in the 1800s. And this is the sort of like hoop jumping that I went through for this one position. So we went to the Hoito in Thunder Bay and we kidnapped Matt Murray, Pittsburgh starting goaltender. And it was one of our more controversial choices, but it was the only controversial choice. If you don't like him, we got Calvin Pickard to back up um, James Reimer and we can go all Manitoban routes. 
I just thought it was necessary to call in some reinforcements from a land that was kind of truly Manitoba's when I think everything got going uh, after Confederation. <laughs> so with that shutdown defense, maybe you don't need an all-star goaltender. And uh, the whole idea of putting this together, I think, is terrific. Uh, why don't you go through the second line? Because uh, the second line is pretty uh, interesting. Did you? I don't think you named the wingers on that first line. Okay, yeah. Our, our top line wingers are Max Domi, who was a, a Winnipegger for the first approximate year of his life before the Jets went south. So it conf- reminds us. It's a little bit of a stretch on Max Domi, but hey, birth certificates count, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, his infancy happened here. Uh, there's poetry, there's connection to Ty Domi. Um, nothing gold can stay. I keep re- reiterating that because Winnipeg's hockey history does have some tragedy in it, right? I mean, the WHA Jets got a bit pillaged on their way into the NHL. Um, every time Winnipeg had a phenomenal NHL team, I mean, they ran into Edmonton. So we need we need a Max Domi to remind us that, uh, that you know, even our greatest aspects don't always last. So we need to take advantage of what we've got. Mark Stone on the right wing of uh, of our top line is just, to my mind, the best defensive forward in the NHL for a long time. And, and there's no Selkie this uh, Selkies to, to celebrate quite yet for him. So he'll be hungry on Team Manitoba to, to get what's his. Um, second line centered by Travis Zajac, which uh, I joked between Zajac and Taves, you'd have a better... Uh, better odds of getting into a Festival de Voyager lineup after midnight than winning a face-off from these guys. Um, <laughs> and then Jordan Martinuk on our left wing, or Michael Furland on our left wing for that second line, uh, an up-and-coming player for sure, uh, who has a humble backstory and uh, and has done some good things after after overcoming some, some things in his life as well. And then Nolan Patrick, our, our future uh, we moved him to right wing so that he could play a top six role, get some power play time on the on the second line. It goes down like that. We're surprisingly deep. I actually looked through it. Uh, we're one of the better teams and one of the only great teams that is cap compliant. Aha. Uh-huh. So <laughs> there you go. So we're under the salary cap. And uh, we would even have a little bit of room uh, to make some some moves should uh, some young Manitoba superstars uh, make their way onto NHL rosters uh, throughout the year. So I like that. Who's the coach and who's the GM? Okay, so in terms of coaching, I think that we've got to go to Dauphin and pick up Barry Trotz. I, I think that his resume is just so sterling throughout the NHL and the uh, University of Manitoba and, and all of its connections to this province. Um, I have a lot of time for Ralph Kruger, who has worked uh, in, in hockey and in, in soccer. It just brings such a different philosophy to the game that I think resonates with a lot of people. I'm not sure who our GM is. Do you want to be our GM? I would love to be the GM, but Kelly McCrimmon might fight me for that. Yeah, um, I had issues with with Kelly McCrimmon strictly because of, I guess, NHL rivalries with Winnipeg, and I didn't know how. I, I think you got it, though. I think that that's the right right call. I'll, I'll concede. There's uh, two Golden Knights on the on the roster, so you know what? Uh, with everything that Kelly's done, I have no problem uh, making him uh, the general manager of this team. How many points would we expect? Team Manitoba to get in an NHL season based on all the fancy stats and the analytics that you're such an expert on, where, where would they rank? Well, we, we threw it in the machine and it spat out 96 points at the end of the season for this cap-compliant, polite, friendly, and terrific Manitoban team. So that's a playoff team, 8 out of 10 years. 
Um, it is a team with a lot of cup rings on it from Jonathan Taves right down through the end. It's well balanced in terms of personalities and philosophies and the amount that they give back. I think that they'd squeak in the playoffs and then some, some good old team Manitoba friendly grit would, uh, would give them a fighting chance. And um, a lot of the other teams that you see along um, our site, Ontario, Quebec, et cetera. I mean, they're very, very, very expensive. And, and who knows what all of those, you know, you put Connor McDavid and Steven Stamp goes on the same team. They're, I mean, that's a lot of, there's, those guys don't have egos. I'm, I'm trying to really shoot them down. But really what it is, is is Team Manitoba, I think, is one of the stronger options that we've got. I like what you're doing with this, Marat, because it's kind of the perfect opportunity to invite engagement from the armchair quarterbacks. So what has the reaction been? Has anybody reached out and said, oh, come on, you should have taken person B, not person A? Um, I, I've made some some uh, some controversial calls that I think people uh, people had their issues with. I mean, uh, to to give Eric Fair, who just signed a contract overseas, uh, a spot uh, on as our thirteenth forward, I actually cut Darren Helm off in the, in the name of uh, Eric Fair. But Eric Fair wrote a, a children's book against bullying, and I couldn't leave that off the team. I believe in the values too. Um, so uh, Darren Helm was a popular one to, to add to the team. Zach Whitecloud was a, was a popular one to add to the team. That Matt Murray goaltending situation left some, some feathers ruffled. And, uh, and I, I would say, too, that then the requests started coming in, right? The all-Finnipeg team, right? The uh, all-Finnipeg team. <laughs> I saw that and I thought, that is fantastic. And the, the scary or impressive part is the fact that you can fill out an entire 20-man roster with Finnish hockey players who have played for some iteration of the Winnipeg Jets. Yeah, it was... Uh, I didn't know what I was getting into when I started that, but all of a sudden there were four lines, six D and two goaltenders, and they were all good. I found a spot for Venla Hovey, the three-time gold medalist uh, for the Finnish women's team, or pardon me, three-time bronze medalist for the Finnish women's team. Um, it, it was... Quite the exercise, and sometimes we acknowledge all of this stuff. That I mean, Finnipeg, and I mean even Ville Heinola and uh, and Henry Nickenin that the the Jets just took, and then Patrick Liney and all through Kimi Salon. Oh, we know the the names, but to find out just how many there were, it was a it was a learning exercise. It was brilliant, and the best thing about the Athletic is our comment section is a spot that you'd actually want to read. And I just love seeing what people come up with, and and that was a good one. I I'm. If I had the time, I mean, it's a long weekend. I, I would love to turn that into a fully fleshed out piece, too, because it's such a good idea from the comment section. All right. Well, hey, Murat Atesh, thank you very much for bringing this to our attention. Super fun. And, uh, and Greg uh, was very excited. Uh, he's he got so many windows open with hockey history in front of him right now. <laughs> I want to make sure I didn't miss anybody. You know what I didn't ask you? How do we, Would we have more points in Team Saskatchewan? Oh, I, I'm sure that we would. I, I'm not even looking. I'm just saying, yes, of course we would. I, Perfect answer, Murat. <laughs> you know your audience. I appreciate it. Thanks for this, and uh, happy Terry Fox Day. And uh, we'll we'll catch up with you uh, again before the NHL season starts. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun, guys. Murat Atesh with The <laughs> Athletic, joining us live on 680 CJOB. It is a subscription service, but it is tremendous. And again, if you want to read more on that, you can mean just Google Team Manitoba, Murat Atesh, or The Athletic, and you'll find it. You can also text us, 204-780-6868, if you want the link. 
Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.